The presenting sponsor of Wild Ideas Worth Living is Subaru. It's almost the season of giving and the Subaru Share the Love event is a great example of giving back to causes that matter. By the end of this year, Subaru of America and its retailers will have donated more than $200 million through the Subaru Share the Love event over 13 years. From helping fund our national parks through the National Parks Foundation to finding rescue animals new homes through the ASPCA, this event has helped raise money for important local and national organizations across the country. It feels good to give back, and now you can get a great vehicle and support a cause you care about. With every Subaru purchased or leased, Subaru will donate $250 to your choice of charities. This event runs from now until January 4th, 2021. So if you've been considering buying a new Subaru, now is the time. Head to Subaru.com share to learn more about the Subaru Share the Love event. If you're down here in the city like we are, and there's lines telling you to go every direction, and we turn left here, and we wait for the light here, and don't park here, and now you go in the elevator, and these hallways, and it's just really all confined and cramped for me in a way, and I just haven't found any place like the mountains where you can go wherever you want to go, but you've got to get yourself there. There's consequences. It's, it's just the most engaging, fascinating environment, and there are limits. I, wouldn't, I hate, hate them. There's no limits. There are, but you can push them and you can know what yours are physically and what the conditions are and then put all that together to have an amazing day. Noah Howell is a semi-professional backcountry skier who spends his time gliding down some of the world's craziest slopes on rarely traveled mountaintops. If you're unfamiliar with the sport, backcountry skiing is like the badass cousin of downhill skiing. It means skiing down slopes, often in remote parts of mountain ranges, with no chairlifts, no ski patrol, and no manicured runs. It's pretty gutsy because you can encounter avalanches, ice, and cliffs as you descend down the mountain. Noah started backcountry skiing and ski mountaineering 20 years ago before it was ever popular. When he skis down these backcountry slopes or lines, as skiers call them, he feels free. That freedom is something Noah focuses on in every aspect of his life. I had the chance to interview Noah in person at the beginning of 2020, and lots has changed in the world since then. We may not have as much freedom as we did in January of this year, but you can still get outside and recreate responsibly. I'm Shelby Stanger, and this is Wild Ideas Worth Living. Noah Howell has been named one of the 50 icons of backcountry skiing by Backcountry Magazine. He also was the second person to ski all 90 lines of what author Andrew McLean deemed the steepest ski lines in Utah's Wasatch Mountains. While Noah has skied some of the hardest slopes around the world, he actually didn't take up skiing until after high school. You've done a lot, Noah. Done a lot. I have done a lot, yeah. So part of the reason you said you really like freedom is you grew up in somewhat of a restricted rule-following household. You said you also grew up Mormon. Tell yeah. me about how you know growing up Mormon later impacted you to just be this incredibly <laughs> free-spirited person like you told me on the phone. Did you just have a lot of rules growing up? 
I had a lot of motivation and a lot of energy and passion and even for religion when I was in it, but I kept bouncing up against the walls of it. Well, like, why is it so limited? Why can't we do this? You know, like, why is that? That doesn't make sense. That seems incorrect. Like so what I, specifically? Well, just, just what I believe now is just, I mean, we are absolute individual organisms that no one else can tell us our path or direction. I'm, and that's why I was a little hesitant about podcasts is I just really don't like when people get on and are like telling you, how do you live your life? And this is how I did what I did, you know, and this is what you should do. And it's like, I'm in a different situation. I'm in a different time and space where maybe, but maybe that's fine advice, but I don't know that it works that way. Was there a moment though in life where you're like, I'm going to be an adventurer full time and make it work? I had a really weird moment when I was like 13. I remember driving by some white, I, like I didn't, I didn't ski. We didn't go in the mountains as a family really. And I just remember looking off at some like white peaks and, and I'm just like told my dad, I'm like, I want to go up there. It was powerful for me. I don't, I don't yeah. even know if he remembers that, but just the high places called to me. And then, yeah, it kind of was a spiritual trade off. You know, when I left Mormonism, I kind of went to the mountains. How old were you when you left? Uh, 19. I went on a mission which they do when you're 19. I mean, I had a very open mind and view of what Mormonism meant to me. It was very much just about a great potential for people to, you know, come to find a relationship with God or, or whatever you want to call it. But but I went on my mission. It was very strict. Where was your mission? Uh, Montreal, Canada. So strict Catholic, you know, they don't want to hear anything from 19-year-old Mormon kid from Utah, which I totally so your mission was to go to montreal and talk to catholic people um well it's you know mainly catholic so it's it's to just knock on doors okay and it's a catholic area yeah 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 yeah, predominantly catholic so i got there and and it was just follow the rules here's what you memorize and read to people and if they don't believe then you like cross them off your list and so we'd meet amazing people but because they're drinking coffee or because they're smoking weed we're like, can't talk to them. And I'm like, this is just, if there was a Christ, this is not what he would have done. He was like hanging out with the whores and the, you know, bums and like hanging out. He was without hanging out with everybody without judgment. Exactly. What you mean. So, yeah. yeah. And so I was just like, I'm, I'm out of here. So I, I bailed. And at that point I really left the religion and, and kind of went off. And so when you came back from your mission, is that when you decided to find skiing? I'd found it a few years before because waiting for my mission after high school, I got a job at Deer Valley Ski Area. Oh, that's great. It was awesome. That's an amazing resort. Probably one of the best snow resorts in the world. Uh, it's good. Okay. It's good. For yeah. me. Yeah. I visited. <laughs> yeah. It gets half as much snow as resorts on the front side. Wow. So, but a great place to learn to ski. And that's where I fell in love with powder. That's where I fell in love with skiing and was just like, this is really fun. And so after the mission, I went back and worked there again. How fun. Yeah. And you were a, like a ski instructor? Lifty. Oh, Lifty. No. Oh, yeah. Lifty. Oh, my God. That's like the hardest job ever. It's freezing. The best was they would give us an hour break before public was on the mountain. So you could go ski for an hour. So you're getting untracked powder or corduroy for an hour. I didn't give a shit what I did the rest of the day. It was, it was like, I'm going to be okay. I'm wow. going to be good because, uh, yeah. I always tell people that like being a Lifty because there's actually a lot of international programs for lift ticket sure. scanners. So if you're like, yep. you know, when you go to a lot of mountains, there's a lot of people from Chile and Argentina and yep. Peru, a lot of South Americans. Totally. I think it's such a great way to experience the winter parts of the United States. Yeah. Yeah. It was a, such a fun job. So many good friends, so many good times. 
And, it, you know, in that industry, it was like, if you return, you got like promoted. So it was like every year I was getting like a raise and then I'd work less. And yeah, I just, just realized I didn't want to work that much. I wanted to ski powder. And so I, I would just cram it all in on the weekends. Um, I'd work double shifts, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And then so I could have Monday through Friday off to ski. It's funny. I did a year in Breckenridge, Colorado, and I wrote for the newspaper and I did uh-huh. a story on like tales of a lift ticket scanner. <laughs> and I spent a day with a lifty yeah. and I was like frozen, but I just, I was really in awe of their job. Yeah. And they met the funniest people all day long yeah. and talked a lot of smack and it looked really fun. So you grew up kind of outdoorsy, but you got really into outdoors later, like mm-hmm. obviously at Deer Valley. Then yep. how did you end up just making a living kind of following your passion? Uh, making a living is a, t- a stretch maybe, but uh, I get to travel a lot and do a lot of cool stuff. But um, it's just, yeah, it was evolution. So I, I discovered powder, fell in love with that. And that was kind of where my brother and some friends, we started a club uh, called Powder Whores. And we'd meet every Tuesday night and get like uh, pizza at Devon's in Park City. And we'd like plan our big ski tour the next day. So we got into ski touring and exploring, you know, the mountains by hiking around because, you know, the resorts get tracked out pretty quick. Um, ski touring is hiking to different spots to ski. Yeah. Backcountry skiing. Okay. Yep. Yeah. You hike up, no lift. Um, and, you know, usually with climbing skins is, is the best way. But uh, how old were you? Early 20s. Okay. Yeah. And your brother, is he older or younger? He's younger. He's two years younger. He kind of followed me. He was a, uh, went to work at Deer Valley as a ski instructor. And then, yeah, ski a ton. Yes, we'd plan our group ski tour and we'd go out and just track up powder. And, you know, 20 years ago, it was there were not that many people doing it. So kind of had the place to ourselves. And, yeah, developed those skills slowly. You know, avalanche awareness, navigation. Just, there's just a lot that goes into it. And... So how did you fund your lifestyle? Um, at that point, I was working a little bit at the ski areas, and then my dad did interior design. And so we'd go down to San Diego in the summer and work with him. Um, he uh, used to have a huge firm in Salt Lake, and then he kind of downsized. Anyway, we started working for Jewel, the singer, and she was just blowing up at the time. So we did like five houses for her and just like fully re- redesigned. And my dad was all about doing it like quick and in the moment, like – if, you know, we would order furniture and wait, you know, for six months. Anyway, it was kind of revolutionary what he was doing and she loved it and he was actually really talented. So, so that was fun. And we that's were, a good side story. It was that great. I didn't expect to no. have. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we were making awesome money. We were making like 40 bucks an hour cash under the table, working six days a week. So we just work hard all summer and then we could, you know, come back in the winter and we started, you know, buying video cameras and filming and recording what we were doing in the backcountry because we just couldn't believe that all this was going on and people weren't doing it. And it was just so easily accessible and so cool. We just wanted to share it. So, so you're an early filmmaker in, in yeah. skiing besides Warren Miller. Uh, I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it, we follow, you know, we followed his model. We started taking it on tour. Our first tour, I think, was like two cities. And then by the end, we were doing 40 different stops in the fall every fall going on the road and just sleeping in the trailer. And so you became totally proficient in making video as well. So you can edit, you can shoot, you can pretty much do it all. Yeah, we weren't, we didn't do it well. We just wanted to get it done and you know, cause we were doing it all. So you don't, you don't get good at something when like you're shooting all winter and then, Oh yeah, I got to remember how to edit. And Oh, now we got to promote the thing. You know, we were, we were doing it all. We kind of liked doing it guerrilla style too and not have it all polished. You know, when the, 
red cams came out and all that stuff we were just like we don't want to carry that around you can't go anywhere you can't actually do something this is all just set up bullshit like we wanted to go ski stuff Noah and his brother were making B-grade films about their epic ski trips, but it quickly turned into something they called Powder Whore Productions, a full-fledged production company that showed films all over the country. The best part was that Noah could continue backcountry skiing, and he got really good at it. If you're a longtime listener, you've heard me talk about The Shooting Gallery, a book by Andrew McLean on the 90 most challenging descents in the Wasatch Mountains. McLean was the first to complete all 90 slopes, and Noah was the second. When did you do Andrew McLean's shooting gallery? We interviewed Caroline Gleick, uh-huh. who also did that. After you, yeah. you were the second guy to do it. Yeah. Andrew hadn't skied them all until he heard I was going to try and tick them all off, and then he like had two left, and so he went and, and ticked them and beat me to it. But uh, yeah, Andrew was a big inspiration for me I was a backcountry skier skiing like mellow powder bowls. And then I went to a slideshow where he presented his new book, The Shooting Gallery. And it was just skiing all these couloirs. Like we talked about these crazy, stupid, weird lines that are narrow, narrow and, you know, weird traverses on like crazy ribbons of snow that you'd look at and be like, why would you go there? But it sparked something in me. I was like, oh, that's so dumb, but that looks cool, too. So I started just skiing some of the mellow ones and the more actually fun ones. And then I realized I was like halfway through the book a couple of years later and it's like, Oh, it'd be a cool project to try and tick all these off. So got a little more serious about it and had some good winners that I was able to do that. So. How long did it take you to tick them off? Well, I mean, I didn't, I didn't really start with that in mind. It was just, I skied them. Yeah. I mean, I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I got the book in the late nineties and then I finished, I think in 2011 or something. So so it took 10 years, yeah. but I mean, but it wasn't like you were set on like finishing it until like the last few years. It was like the last few years where I was like, okay, I want to really finish this up. And were those last few lines hard to find and finish? They were tricky to, to finish because in backcountry skiing, you're dealing so much with the snow. The conditions are everything. If you ski something that's 30 degrees, but it's ice, that's horrifying. So when we're talking about 50 degree stuff and 45 degree stuff, you really need it and you want it in good snow. It's just more enjoyable. So as I had fewer and fewer left, yeah, you don't get as many days where conditions line up for those. So, and it becomes more dangerous because when you're objective driven, you're trying to force it. You're like, Oh, maybe it's good today, even though it's not ideal. You know, we could maybe get away with it. We can maybe push it instead of just trying to ski. What's the best thing we could ski today when you've got these objectives in mind, but it's a fun game. That's what I love. I love the fun. It's a game challenge. It is. It's Uh a, it's Total so, game. It's so fun. So when you did the last one, the 90th line. Yeah, we brought whiskey. You... And Andrew. I brought Andrew along. Oh, that's so It was great. really cool. We filmed it for Powder Horror. It was our film company. And then put a little segment together. So that's out there on online. But yeah, it's like a hanging snow field up high. And then it's just rock. And so you rappel over the rock to get to the apron and ski down. So one of the things I read about you is you've crossed so many items off of what I'd imagine to be like the ultimate winter bucket list. Right. Like you're a bucket list ticker. Just talk to me about how you've managed to build bucket lists in skiing and adventuring. Um, putting in the time. I'm old-ish. And so I've been around. And so we've been able to stay healthy enough and stay alive and tick some things off. Yeah, it's really just getting out 
a lot and I love backcountry skiing and I love all the aspects, you know, some people just like powder skiing or some people just are into the fitness realm. And to me, I've been lucky to have sponsors that have, can give me all the skis I need to go play no matter what the conditions are. So I've got really small skis to run around. And so I've done some cool stuff like big ultra, you know, link ups like the ski hard rock 100. We did that in the winter. I don't even know what that is. So you basically. So do you know the hard rock 100 race? It's a hundred mile race in the summer and we went and did it in the winter and we camped one night and then stayed in different towns. So we linked up like Ure to Telluride and then it ends in Silverton. And you do it on skis. Yeah, we did it on skinny little skis, just moving all day, you know, 30 mile days, 11,000 feet, just pretty wild terrain in Colorado. Um, and we were the first group to do that. So I just, I love getting out. I love skiing powder just as much, but the mountains are always changing. And so I just like to link up, you know, my skis and my objectives with, with what's good and, and go play. Where have you been in the world on, on skis? And where are some of the most memorable places you've skied? Baffin Island is probably the coolest place. It's up in Canada. It's in the Arctic. And it's some of the most incredible terrain. It's like Yosemite Valley. Uh, huge sheer walls, but there's couloirs that run through them, like five, 6,000 foot couloirs. What's a couloir? Uh, it's a tight chute of snow. So it's like a narrow hallway of snow. And it's usually, you know, uh, like an erosion gully. And then the snow fills in. Um, so we camped on the fjords up there for 17 days. We used kites to get around on the flat ice to the base of these chutes. And so you kite ski? <laughs> no, but I'm I'm not afraid to just try stuff, even though I'm not good at it or do it. And we just we just kind of did that. <laughs> we were like practicing like two weeks before the trip how to kite, and uh, we ended up yeah getting some strong winds up there. We were going like 45 miles an hour on the ice wow. at one point, um, and we just. Yeah, so that was that was that was probably the coolest one of the coolest places I've been. Been to Antarctica on the cruise ship, where they take zodiacs to the shore and and ski off the boat. That was really weird and unique. I've spent a lot of time in Alaska, skied a lot of different ranges up there. Uh, I think I've been up there fourteen seasons, bunch of different new lines up there and ranges that haven't been skied in um, all over the Western U.S. I haven't really done much in Nepal or the big mountains over there. Budget-wise, it's just so easy to go to Alaska, and there's so much to do there. Good snow. Budget-wise, I feel like it would be expensive to go to Alaska. Well, compared to, like, to find big mountains, you know, you got to go out of the lower 48, and so your kind of options are Canada and Alaska, which are much cheaper than going to, like, yeah, Europe, Nepal, Pakistan, stuff like that. In the past 10 years... Noah has continued to stay off the beaten path. Instead of regularly posting on social media, Noah's gone old school. He puts on slideshows across the country. When we come back, Noah talks about his favorite slideshow moments, his crazy 11,000 foot descent, and how he built a yurt. Supporting the belief that a life outdoors is a life well-lived, having an Icon Pass in your pocket unlocks more unique ski destinations, more days at the mountain, and more road trip adventures with your favorite crew. With winter just over the horizon, lock in tomorrow's turns today and get ready to explore wide open spaces, cut endless lines through fresh mountain air, 
and discover new adventures with old friends. On sale now, every 2020-2021 Icon Pass comes with Adventure Assurance, giving you the confidence to ride. Discover pass options in Plan for Adventure at IconPass.com. Noah stopped making movies with his brother about five years ago. Since then, he's been a semi-professional ski athlete. He also does some guiding, avalanche education, riding, and he puts on slideshows across the country. When I say slideshows, I don't mean PowerPoints. I mean, he takes photos from his most amazing adventures, transfers them onto old slides, and he projects them from one of those old school reels that ticks as it shifts from slide to side. He does these shows in partnerships with the Sent Backcountry Snow Journal, and they show them to audiences across the United States. So you also do slideshows. I do slideshows, yeah. Well, I think that's really interesting because we're in this world of like <laughs> YouTube and social media and Instagram, and you're like, yeah. that's like as old school as it gets, slideshows. Yep. Yep. So, so you go to cities and you take slideshows with you <laughs> and talk to people? I mean, this is like well, You 80s. put it this way, you're really not selling this to No, anybody. it sounds, it actually sounds epic, but it's just so funny because like that never happens today in my world. Right. Well, it's kind of ties in with, you know, we'd go on the film tours and it was so fun to roll in and have a beer with people you haven't seen for a while. Usually, you know, we've got friends in all these places and talk about skiing and get people excited. And I don't, feel like Instagram delivers that. People hardly read captions. It's all curated. Everybody says exactly what they want and edits it and filters it. And when you're put up there in front of a live audience, I don't know what I'm going to say. I forget what slide's coming next. So I, I like that on the spot. I like that real like get to know the person and the athlete. We had these buddies. They biked from Salt Lake up to Alaska and climbed Denali, the tallest peak, and skied it. It's like, that was so cool. But you're not going to get that story on Instagram. And I don't care how many. slide that you yeah, were they, showing. They came, they came to several shows and, and killed it. And it's so much fun. To me, that's just, I like the real. I like being a little more honest and upfront and raw. I think it's cool. And what slides will you show? Different projects. So last year, we skied an 11,000 foot run, which is really rare on the planet. And uh, it only been skied once before. Where was that? Up in Alaska. And so I presented on that this year. So what's the picture that I'm going to see and what are you saying <laughs> to me? Well, you know, before you head into a range, you know, we'd get a flyover usually, check out conditions from the air. So there's some, you know, nice visuals from the plane of the line. Good snow, good conditions. So we got landed on the glacier and there's some camping photos of us setting up, you know, a little mid tents and, and our base camp getting that dialed what was skiing down eleven thousand feet like how long does that take took us about probably three or four hours to ski down <laughs> one run yeah i like cried at sun valley because one run took <laughs> those, me 20 minutes those are long those are long and they were so steep I, yeah but you for you they're not steep but yeah. i was terrified the whole time so it it starts at seventeen thousand feet and the top thousand feet was horrible because it was wind blown it was some of the worst snow and then it turned to powder 
I'm not even kidding. We skied like boot top to knee deep powder for eight, eight or 9,000 feet. So oh, like a, a run hours. at, so like a run at Sun Valley is like 2,000 feet. So this is, this was 8,000 feet of continuous in like beautiful snow. How do your legs feel? Luckily there were four of us. So you kind of do what's called leapfrogging. So you get breaks. So a couple of people ski and then pull off and then it's your turn and you'll go past them a little bit and pull up and, and stop. So you could follow so, their tracks. Follow their tracks sometime or you're the one leaning out and, and trying not to fall in crevasses or go off into, you know, no man's land or hit ice and stuff. So, but then it starts snowing so bad that we couldn't see at all. So the visibility was, so we just sat there for like 30, 40 minutes. And that's when you're like, did we bring enough food? Is this going to let up? Like, cause we didn't have tents. Um, and we were 20 hours in at this point, we just had some stoves with, you know, food and fuel and big puffy, you know, clothes. So we could hunker down. We could have bivied if we needed to, but uh, luckily then it led up and we could just ski more powder. And then the crux of that line was it got really steep at the bottom and icy. So we were up on this icy ridge and that was really slow. You know, like you're sidestepping down with your ice axe out like 50 degrees fall, you're going to die. And we got 3000 feet left to go. Some little bit of intricate navigation. Get off and then it was like good corn for, so maybe it was, yeah, but I Good I think, what? Uh, corn snow. I don't know what that means. I'm sorry. No problem. So when the snow settles out and gets really compressed and warm um, and then it freezes at night, but then in the morning or at some point in the day when the sun just kisses the top part of it, you can, sh you know, shred into that and ah. the, like your edges just bite into that. And it's, it's kind of a, it's not really, sometimes it's a, like a corn consistency, like granular. And so that's really fun. Very different. Yeah. More like a, a skiing a groom run or corduroy at the resort. But um, yeah, so we had that to the base and then we rested for like an hour and then we had to climb back out of there. But that was an amazing day but one of the biggest days of my life and biggest lines that so, sounds so fun what you do is just like it sounds so adventurous in the sense that not many people have done what you've done and very free <laughs> yeah yeah there's there's a lot of people out there doing really cool stuff it's really blown up and lucky to have some great partners on that one ben peters one of the best skiers i know and then adam fabricant and billy haas are both guides super i mean they're 10 years younger than me and so my fitness is kind of waning and they're super strong how old are you now 43 well done yeah how do you how do you stay in shape for backcountry skiing a mix of things so to climb you know 10,000 feet in a day is a lot and you have to build volume so right now that's what i'm doing it's early in the winter and i just have just getting out every day trying to do like 5,000 feet I'm like four or five times skiing or walking yeah and running? A, a, okay. uphill so I, I like I count vertical feet gained so not mileage but just like so how much skinning. you climb yeah how much you okay. climbed or booted and trying to get 20 to 25,000 feet in a week and then if I can do that consistently for like a month or two then I have a really good base to go into the spring for like bigger single day pushes and bigger missions but then supplement that with getting into the gym and just doing strength work, keep everything connected and, and, and strong. How do you avoid injury? Because I don't. I've torn three ACLs. <laughs> Yikes. Yeah. Had two repaired. And then this last time I did it, I didn't get it repaired because I, did, I just didn't want to go through the recovery. And it's been fine uh, getting to the gym enough that I've kept it strong. But I down the road, I should probably get it fixed. But. Cool. Good yeah. luck with that. Thanks. Um, that's that's <laughs> tough. Having, yeah, that's, it's pretty common for yeah. skiing. Advice to people who want to get into backcountry skiing, where okay. could they take a lesson? So 
yeah, it's funny. A lot of people have the fitness, you know, a lot of people coming from like mountain biking or trail running and want to get into backcountry skiing. So they have the fitness for the uphill. I'd really recommend skiing, like going to the ski area and learning how to downhill ski. You see a lot of people that are just not very good skiers and it's actually kind of dangerous and, and not as fun if you can't enjoy the downhill. So getting in the resort laps and then obviously avalanche education courses and those are blowing up all over. And then, yeah, just be smart and follow your gut out there. And I always tell people it's not tennis. You can't just pick up a racket and go on the court. This court can kill you. So to me, it's this is a lifelong mastery process, and you have to look at it that way. A lot of people are just like, ah, I'm going to buy an airbag, and I'm going to get skis and skins, and I'm good to go. And it's like, no, you're not. You're dangerous. So looking at it that way, and I, I think the backcountry community is doing a good job of still passing that fear on that needs to exist. Like climbing, it's clear. Like if you fall, you're going to get hurt. But with avalanches, it's very different where you coming into this, you don't know where they're lurking. You don't know when you're in danger. And so, and then it can happen and, and it's, you know, bad things. So I'm terrified of avalanches. So I think yeah. the backcountry industry has done a good job of, yeah. of teaching people that they need education about that. It, it's having that fear of knowing that, but then, but then working towards it, there are ways that we can go play there safely. But you need to you need to learn those rules and you need to learn those those protocols. Doing what you love can be scary. It can be hard on your body and it can be hard to buck the norm and focus on just what you want to do. For Noah, it was important to be honest about that. He doesn't want to sugarcoat his life. You want to do things your way, yes. but at the same time, you want to make a living doing what you love. I'd rather tear things down than like build up a facade. So, and that's been hard as a quote unquote athlete where I'm supposed to project that like everything's amazing and I just shit flowers and like everything's easy and I'm fully supported. And, and it's like, I, maybe that's the case for some people, but it's not for me. And I'd rather be honest and show you, like tell you what's really going on. Yeah, even if it's tell me really quickly, like how, how you actually make it work. Is that it, it hasn't been financially. the easiest? Yeah. Uh, uh, scrambling for sure. Like when we did the powder horror films, that actually was decent. You know, we were pulling in like fifty grand a year. Working for Plus, Jewel was lucrative. Doing yes, powder exactly. horror. Yeah, powder horror was great. Was now lucrative. it's a full scramble of a little bit of writing. I still shoot videos, I still edit. Uh, a little bit of guiding, a little bit of sponsorship funding. Um, I do a little woodworking. Um, yeah, a bunch of piece, piece it together. You so. do woodworking. Okay, so I appreciate that you're telling us that it's not easy always to do what you love. I think there are some people that were just like, that links up and they get the big sponsorship contract and they're, but the, everybody I see is working hard or they're a trust funder, so. <laughs> That was a very honest answer. <laughs> yeah, no one talks about that, though, in the industry. It's funny. You're like, I'm like watching these people. I'm like, I know your sponsors. This just doesn't add up. You're traveling year round and just going to team meetings and going. I'm just like, wow, I'm not on that program. Yeah. And, and there's a little bitterness, but also I, I don't fully want to play the game, too. You know, like I don't I don't want to be 
doing that all the time. It's a constant battle. Yeah. Yeah. internally i understand that yeah. and yeah. there's a lot of people who have resources and you don't know what people's situations no, are fully. you'll never know exactly unless you ask them and <laughs> right. some people are more honest about it and forthcoming than yeah. others yeah but you've managed to make it work and yeah. you've done so many things that people would only dream about and i think that's really cool like ticking off bucket list ski lines yeah skiing down a run that's over 20 minutes is to me incredibly <laughs> impressive four hours long is wild <laughs> That's one of the most wild ideas I've ever heard on this podcast. Another thing you recently did was you built a yurt, which is like very relevant to your personality. I'm learning because it seems like you built this like cabin in the middle of woods, which is like the ultimate dream for so many people listening to this podcast. What was that like? Where is it? Yeah. So how did you make it happen? I did this dumb bucket list thing. I was like, what do I really want to do? Like I really felt there's still things I want to ski and things I want to experience in the mountains. Absolutely. But, but I, I feel like I've done, I could be good where I'm at. Like I've skied a lot. So I came to like the one thing that popped up was like, I want to build, I want to build a cabin. So I started looking around and found some relatively cheap land nearby and bought that. And then we, in Utah. Yeah. Yep. In Utah. And then we bought this old piece of shit trailer off KSL for like $1,700, this 1979 trailer. What's KSL, like Craigslist? Uh, it is. It's okay. a local Craigslist. And we uh, parked it up there, put it on blocks, put a like uh, reinforced roof up there for snow loads, put a stove in it, and we had a fun little place to hunker down for a few years and then wanted to, to do a yurt. So uh, yeah, put up a put up a yurt this year, this it fall. sounds like a lot of people were really willing to help you build it, including your dentist. <laughs> Yeah, how'd you? Yeah, I research. I was like, wow, I don't remember. Um, yeah, dentist was awesome. Thanks, Rich. I, I haven't paid for dental work in like eight years. Uh, I've just been training for ski gear. So Rich is Rich is an awesome guy. That's cool. I mean, I think yeah. one of the ways you make it work is you trade your skills. <laughs> yeah, I know you don't like giving advice, but a lot of people have bucket lists mm-hmm. and they don't tick them off. Yeah, advice to people building a bucket list and then checking those items off i mean i won't say for anyone else but for me it's like what i keep asking and demanding of myself is like honesty like what is really going on and and that's trickled trickles down in the mountains where it's like to me that relationship is utmost important is where are you at and what are you really observing in the mountains and to me that's what's kept me safe and that's what kept me going is that honesty because i it's easy to lie to yourself and like think oh i can do this when you're not ready or you're trying to prove it for someone else or there's just so many internal motivations that affect that are always like at work and in play when we're doing these things and that's fine but what are they and do you know them so what's the next bucket list item um so i'm i'm working on a project because <laughs> i like ticking books obviously um so there's a book called 50 Classic Ski Descents of North America and uh, 30 lines deep into that. And so, yeah, in the skiing realm, that's what I'm working on is, is skiing those big, big monster lines all over Canada, Alaska, and, and the lower 48. Wow, congratulations. Well, best <laughs> of luck with that. Thanks. So what's on your bucket list? Are those goals on your list because you actually want to experience them or because of what other people might think of you? 
I really respect Noah's ability to say yes to the things he loves and the things he wants to do. He's not confined to conventional norms. Instead, he's built a life pursuing his wildest ideas. Thank you so much to Noah Howell for coming on the show, even though you explicitly told me you don't like doing podcast interviews because you don't like telling other people how to live their lives. I had fun with you. Your dedication to living a life on your own terms and your own bucket list is inspiring. You can learn more about Noah Howell at noahowell.com. That's N-O-A-H-H-O-W-E-L-L.com. You can also connect with Noah on Instagram at Noah underscore J underscore Howell. Wild Ideas Worth Living is part of the REI Podcast Network. It's hosted by me, Shelby Stanger, written and edited by Sylvia Thomas, and produced by Chelsea Davis. Our executive producers are Paolo Motola and Joe Crosby, and our presenting sponsor is Subaru. As always, we love it when you subscribe to this show, rate it, and review it wherever you listen. And remember, some of the best adventures happen when you follow your wildest ideas.